You are listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcva.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. So if you want to open your Bibles and meet the book of Galatians this morning, Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, as we're kind of walking through this incredible epistles of Paul, his first in the entire New Testament that he wrote, the book of Galatians, no other gospel is what we're calling this series. My name is Matt Brooks. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist Church of Broken Arrow, and we're praising the Lord for just kind of his work among us. We just, by God's grace, are seeing adults accept Christ, students accept Christ, kids accept Christ. We're praising the Lord for three more baptisms. This week, we have at our 11 o'clock service, we have a third grader from Metro Christian right here in Tulsa, but she's born and raised in our church. Maddie Dunlap is being baptized, and so honored to be able to do that. Just exciting to see what the Lord is doing. Also, want to celebrate last Sunday, we started a two-year generosity initiative that we are reallocating our resources to maximize our ministries and our missions and our future. We're calling it Greater Still. And so we, last Sunday, had this big Give Sunday kickoff. And by God's grace and your faithfulness, I'm here to celebrate. We gave, you ready for this? $626,583 on one Sunday. Praise the Lord, church. It is the second largest offering in the 119-year history of our church. And so, praise God, just so incredibly excited and faithful. I can't wait to see what God is going to do in and through us. And I'm also excited today is that we, as we turn to Galatians 2, are talking about such such easy, natural subjects. I mean, both of these things, we just do so well. We don't really need instruction. I'm going to talk to you today about, are you ready for this? Change and conflict, all right? Change and conflict, all within the same sermon. And by God's grace, can I tell you and assure you that the Lord has an answer for what you're going through? That there is a word from God himself from the very things that you are going through in your life. And as you walk with him and walk for him, he's got a word for you. And so as we come to this text this morning, as we talk about these two key things of both change and conflict, I just want to ask you that. How do you view change? I mean, for some of you, the, the moment you hear that word, your blood pressure begins to go up. Does it not? Your, your countenance begins to change. I mean, so many of us, change brings fear. It, it makes us uncomfortable. It keeps us in a state of uncertainty. But yet there's this paradox with change, is it not? That, that we realize, one day, yes, that change can be fearful. It makes us uncomfortable. It, it brings us to this state of uncertainty. Yet we know and realize that we need change. The change is often necessary to have lasting growth, that, that we need to change our perspective sometimes to change our future, that we need to change the patterns of our lives to better our lives. There are some things that just have to change. However, for the Christ follower, there was always an acknowledgement. There was always a grace and peace from God that comes that we have a God who never changes, that we have a God, as the Bible says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so it is this precipice that now Paul ushers into Galatians chapter two, that God never changes, that the reign of Christ never changes, that his gospel is not to change because tragically, there were individuals within the churches of Southern Galatia that were manipulating the gospel. They were changing the good news into bad news. And so Paul begins to address in Galatians chapter two, that though the world will ever change, Though our circumstances will change, though tragically people will change, the gospel 
is never to change. Don't change the gospel. Let's talk about how this works out in our lives in regard to change. And then we're going to study verses 11 through 14. I'm going to give you five steps on how to use the gospel in any conflict. Don't change the gospel. Galatians 2, why don't we study verses 1 through 14. Now, Paul is in a battle against false teachers who have been propagating in the regions of southern Galatia a false gospel. Paul is so adamant about this good news because he's seen it change his own life. That this is a real message through the risen Christ that has changed Paul. You see, the gospel was the heart of his life. That's why elsewhere, throughout entire Asia Minor, he would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because I've seen it change my own life. But the bane of Paul's ministry was the sinister activity of these Judaizers, these Jewish legalists from the church at Jerusalem. These men who were false teachers and that they were perverting the good news of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. These men were earnestly accusing and adamantly discrediting Paul's character and message. How? By challenging his authority on all fronts. And that is why specifically in Galatians chapter 1, Paul defends his apostleship. He states that this gospel did not come from any man. He didn't learn this from some rabbi or some contemporary. He got this message from God. And that is why specifically in Galatians 2, he now addresses their insituation, that he claims the gospel is his and his alone because it is from Christ, that this good news is in complete solidarity, precisely the same as the other apostles. You see, some of these false teachers were saying that Paul's gospel was a different gospel than the apostle Peter's, for instance. That Paul's message was in competition, not in complement to Peter's message. And that is why we must remind ourselves of clarifying what is the gospel. The truth that you and I were made by God. We're not this spontaneous combustion of matter endlessly flying within this rock around this endless solar system upon infinite amount of galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies. No, you were made by a creator. You were made by the living God of the universe and the one true God who manifests himself as one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, desires a personal relationship with you. Because you were made by him to live for him. But tragically, instead of living for him, we loved ourselves. We made ourselves something that we could never be. We made ourselves like God. And so we trusted our own ways and our own words and our own thoughts more than God's. And thus we've sinned and fallen short of his mark. And so God being holy and just as he is, judges us in separation from him. But see, the good news is that God knew it was impossible for us to work our way to him. So God himself, through his son, Jesus Christ, came for us, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the Bible says. And the moment that you give your life to Christ, he brings you to the Father. That he does a work in you, not on the outside, but on the inside. That he does not tweak or mold or manipulate, but rather he transforms every aspect of our being. We die, and thus he lives in us. And the moment we give our lives to him, he works his way in and through us. As Are you ready for this? As we become more like God's son. What 
good news. The salvation is through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And it is this gospel in which we stand because no other gospel saves. No other gospel brings you to God. In fact, it keeps you from it. And that is why Paul is so adamant now in Galatians 2 about once again reminding the followers of Christ in southern Galatia that there is no other gospel in which we could be saved because, tragically, these Judaizers slipped in, we'll find today. They covertly begin to overtly take over the gospel. And as Paul is writing to dear friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's earnestly and adamantly applying to them in your relationships and as you go through life, don't change the gospel. And so what we're gonna do is that we're gonna study verses one through two and I'm gonna to introduce to you two companions of Paul, Barnabas and Titus. We're then gonna move in kind of the heart of the letter of Galatians. And we're gonna theologically begin to explain why these Judaizers were so manipulating the gospel, that they were taking this works-based system of circumcision, of the Mosaic traditions. And I'm gonna to give to you Paul's defense of this and he's gonna build the rest of this letter. I'm then gonna give you a wonderful affirmation in verse nine of all of these men who are in alignment with Paul. And then I'm gonna take you in verses 11 through 14 to one of the most dramatic, striking texts in all of scripture. We're gonna have about five to seven minutes to kind of work this through. So I'm gonna need your heart this morning. I need you to listen to what God's doing through this gospel. And then I'm gonna give you five ways, five steps on how to take this gospel as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling with one another as we follow Christ. Don't change the gospel. With that in mind, look at verse one. The Bible says that after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. I gave them the gospel, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, Paul simply gives them here a state of time. He, in my humble opinion, has now been preaching the gospel for right at about 17 years. According to the end of Galatians 1, Paul spent right at three years in Arabia, three years at a time of wilderness and training, and now quantifying his own time from about, oh, Acts chapter 12 all the way through Acts chapter 15, Paul now has been 14 years boldly declaring the gospel. So about 17 years in total of his life, he has seen the risen Christ. He has heard from the risen Christ. He's been preaching the gospel, launching churches, seeing lives changed, homes restored, people never the same because of Christ. And so Paul then declares in Galatians 2 that this message has been independent of any other apostles from the beginning. I'm not borrowing these moralistic statutes from other men. I'm not taking this mysticism and then manipulating it as a means toward the gospel. No, I received this message from Christ himself. Oh, and by the way, I privately met with these other apostles in Jerusalem who endorsed and approved my gospel message. And he introduces to us these two individuals, one by the name of Barnabas. See, Barnabas was a Jewish Christ follower who was a chief supporter, a travel companion of Paul. Barnabas, whose name means, are you ready for this? Son of encouragement. 
You know, can I tell you, as you follow Christ, you just need a couple of Barnabases in your life, you know? You just need some men and women of God that can encourage you. You know, so many of you, you are Barnabases. We need to be encouraging one another as we follow Christ. We need to be encouraging one another with the gospel as we see the, the world literally implode in Europe and the southeast part of our country and all of these other things. We've got to encourage one another. You see, Paul met Barnabas in Antioch. They were partners and co-laborers in the gospel with one another. They planted churches all over Asia Minor. The world has never been the same because of the friendship of these two men in Christ. In fact, you can read about this in your own time. In Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, all of Acts chapter 13, all the way through Acts chapter 14, verse 28. And I took along Barnabas. He then says also Titus. See, Titus was this uncircumcised follower of Christ who was a Gentile. But to Paul, he was more than that. In fact, if you read Titus 1.4 at the end of the New Testament, Paul says that Titus was like a son in the ministry. That he saw Christ get a hold of this man, this Gentile. He wasn't a person of covenant. He wasn't of God's chosen people. But yet he found that Christ chose Titus. The good news changed his life. That he was never the same. So here you have these two beautiful pictures of the gospel, these two kinds of people that God desires to save. One, Barnabas, a Jewish Christ follower, one who was circumcised, was of the covenant of God's chosen people. The other, a Gentile, a nobody to most of the known world, yet not to Christ. Can I find in God's masterpiece of your life how he will give you both kinds of individuals, those who kind of grew up with Christianity and their understanding of Jesus and their understanding of kind of the things to say and not to say around you, and they need the gospel. And then those, mostly your neighbors by God's grace, or that guy who works right next to you in the cubicle or the office, who is as lost as all get out and is consumed with himself and titles and pursuit of everything else besides God. But then he meets Christ and his life is never the same. It is these two individuals that Paul gives as defense of the saving work of God in Christ and not man. And that's why he says in verse 2, in order to make sure that I was running or had not run in vain. Paul says, look, I came to Jerusalem not because of my insecurities, not because of the truthfulness or lack thereof of this gospel message, but I came there because God told me to go there. You can read about this historically in Acts chapter 15. Paul says he had a direct revelation from the risen Christ himself, that he was able by God's grace to meet privately with these other apostles who wholeheartedly affirmed his gospel teaching. And it is now this foundation that Paul works himself into now the theological point of all of the book of Galatians. I mean, what was it that these Judaizers, these false teachers were propagating to God's people? Look at verses three and five. But he says that even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of these false brothers secretly brought in, who are you ready for this? Slipped in to spy out our freedoms that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Take heart, 
Paul in verse four is using very stern language. These false teachers, this word here conveys here a sham. Pseudo Christ followers. They appeared to be one thing on the outside, but they were in actuality the complete opposite on the inside. You see, these men were twisting the true Jewish belief of faith in God. How were Old Testament saints saved? By faith in God, not by a works-based religion, not by imposing circumcisions or the ceremonies of Moses or even the ancestral traditions upon God's people. You see, these false teachers were law-observant. They were propagandists. They were followers of Christ. They were pawns of Satan who were corrupting the gospel. And in doing so, were enslaving God's people. And they did so, you ready for this? Covertly. They were slipping within God's churches in southern Galatia. They were taking this premise of the gospel. They were affirming the risen Christ. They were affirming that one could be saved by faith in Christ, but that faith wasn't enough. You see, it's faith plus circumcision, plus the works of Moses, plus the ancestral traditions. It was a false gospel. And tragically, there were some Christ followers in this region that were beginning to champion their platform and not the gospel. And so Paul uses this imagery here of this sudden, striking surprise that in actuality was intended from the beginning. That as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, that Satan himself will sow within Christ's church, you ready for this? Weeds among the fields. Tears among the wheat. Have you ever had an instance in your life where you were just completely caught off guard? I mean, there's something happened and you just suddenly, I never imagined that would happen. I remember one time I was in South Africa. I was pastoring a church in Alabama and we had worked in coordination with a mission outreach in that part of Africa. And essentially we would start Christian schools and we had opportunities for students to come and receive housing and food and meals. And we would also, through these ministries, we would partner with parents and adults in the region and give them job skills training. And on these campuses would, would be a, a schoolhouse and would be kind of a, a, you know, a town hall, fellowship hall that you know, they could meet and gather and you know, use for meetings and playing games and those sorts of things. But there would also be right around 30 acres that there would be you know, vegetables and tomatoes and cucumbers and lentils. And you know, I'm told you can place those into something called a salad or something. You, know, you, you can then eat those. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm told that's what you do with vegetables. But anyway, and so that's what we had. And so I was visiting one of these campuses and was about to go to another campus. And I noticed that there were some roosters and chickens on this campus. And they began to act incredibly abnormally. The roosters, for instance, were begin to flail their feathers and kind of stand up on their claws and to give the appearance that they were much larger than what they really were. They began to make these really weird sounds and you could tell like something wasn't right. And, and then all of a sudden, there was this blur that there was a snake of 12 feet that came right by me, about 20 feet, and went right after these roosters and chickens. And just like a bomb went off, they scattered with the wind and there were all of these 
kids who you could tell this had happened before, and you know, they, they begin to, to run to these certain areas. Of course, we're, you know, we're trying to steer them away from this huge snake. And you had multiple adults who you could tell had been trained in this and you know, who were saying something in their native tongue, but basically it was like, run, run. And so we got into one of these buildings and we were there about 15 minutes and finally they just kind of began to tell everybody, you just need to go home. And so we got on the bus and the translator looked at us and said, okay, I can tell you now, you just saw a black mamba. Not the late gray Kobe Bryant, but one of the most poisonous snakes in the entire world. And so as we were driving back to our hotel, I began to Google and when we got there, the translator said, yeah, we actually had someone die from a snake bite about 10 days ago. We just didn't tell you before you got on the plane. And I began to find out how venomous this snake truly was. And the entire time, it was 15 to 20 feet from me, and I had no idea. That's the exact point that Paul is making. That these men knew just enough of Jesus to be dangerous. They were taking his gospel and manipulating it and making it their own. In particular, these false teachers began to trans-champion and platform the issue of the circumcision party of the New Testament. They were taking this one specific issue of circumcision and was elevating it to a point that it wasn't just Jesus and Christ alone, but that it was circumcision plus faith and all of these other things. You see, circumcision in the Bible is a distinctly Jewish thing. In fact, the Bible says that every Jewish male or even households, slaves, for instance, that were in the households of, of Jewish males were circumcised as well on the eighth day. I'll remind you that Jesus himself in Luke chapter 2, verse 22 and following, went through circumcision. You see, circumcision was this minor operation that would remove this small portion of flesh, but it majorly meant two things to God's people. You see, these Judaizers were raising this to a higher status. They considered it indispensable as a precondition for salvation, that it was sufficient to save. But circumcision always was an intention of identification, of one who granted membership into God's covenant nation. In fact, remember in Genesis 17, when God came to Abram, and began to change his name to Abraham because he would be a father of many nations? Can I tell you the significance of this event? It was that even Paul himself to the church at Philippi said in Philippians 3, 5, that I was circumcised. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was of the chosen generation. But you see, the intent of circumcision was never to save. Are you ready for this? It was always an outward sign that the deepest level of man's being, that we are sinful and in need of cleansing. That we are in need of repentance, of turning from ourselves to God. And that is why throughout the New Testament, that Paul argues that physical circumcision could never eliminate sinning. Rather, it is an action of God expressed through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just as the skin is physically removed and dies in circumcision, at salvation, our old sinful nature is crucified with Christ and dies. Spiritually, the moment we place our faith in Christ, we die. 
and Christ lives within us. Thus, instantly, we are free from the penalty, power, and dominance of sin. Therefore, this spiritual circumcision unites us by faith, not in our work, but rather the work of God through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, who radically transforms our hearts into a new nature. We die. He lives in and through us. And tragically, these self-seeking, self-glorifying, legalist, Judaizers, are you ready for this? Let their own zeal seal their own perilous fate. As the Bible says, it is impossible to be a Christ follower and to give your life to the works of men. The very thing that these men thought were for God was actually the very thing that kept them from God. They gave themselves to a tradition or traditionalism and it replaced the very God who they claimed to love and serve. But in actuality, this was never about Christ. This was never about what God had done, but rather what these men could do on their own. And the Bible is very clear that the moment that we forsake grace, we are therefore judged in our works, not Christ works. In fact, something interesting. Remember verse three, where Paul says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Do you see this little inclusio here? Notice the apostles in Jerusalem did not force Titus to be circumcised. Why? Because it does not save. Only Christ and Christ alone. And that is why Paul ends this point in verse five. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That Paul summarizes in verse five the entire reason in why he wrote the book of Galatians. Because it was a defense in the truth of the gospel in which Paul did not yield one iota. He held fast to this truth that still sets men free. So much so that he says that this was verified. Look at verse nine. By the other apostles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. You ever heard of that phrase? The right hand of fellowship? What it was, it was used as a means of affirmation. In fact, many treaties in Paul's day were verified this way. It was a signation that we agree on all counts, that we are in alignment in all ways, sealed by an outward acknowledgement. That's exactly what this is. In fact, they commissioned me, Paul says, that I would go to the Gentiles and spread the gospel. These apostles did not amend or add or alter or supplement Paul's gospel in any way. In fact, they accepted, they affirmed, they commissioned him to preach the one true change, unchanging apostolic gospel. Now, this whole setting reminds me of the great 
early 20th century theologian H.A. Ironside. You ever heard of this guy? Many of you through the years have, have probably have read his works in different publications and not even known it. He's, he's one of the, the best systematic theologians that God has ever given us in the last hundred years. And in the early 20th century, H.A. Ironside was challenged by a renowned atheist of an Ivy League institution in New England to a debate. They were going to put it on the radio all over America, once and for all. And H.A. Ironside said, sir, I very much look forward to debating you, but I only have one condition. Why don't you bring one person whose life has been transformed by atheism? Because I'm bringing over 200 plus people whose lives have been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Almost instantly, the renowned atheist canceled the debate. Paul here spikes the football to these Judaizers and these Jewish legalists and says, my gospel is not from man, but from God. And my gospel has not been altered or amended in any way by Christ's men, the apostles. And my gospel is the one true gospel that still changes people's lives because there's no other gospel that saves. Any other gospel is a false gospel. Don't change the gospel. It is now within that truth that Paul and Peter together give us one of the most dramatic events in the entire New Testament. It is this humble reminder to all of us of our need of grace, of our need of one another, of our need to depend upon the Lord and his word and his spirit, that all of us sometimes, even with our best intentions, may get out of alignment with God's word or the ways of the truth of the gospel, that all of us need such fellowship among one another that we can have these conversations that truly matter. And so what I want to do in verses 11 through 14 for the rest of our time, I want to give you five steps to use in gospel conflict that I want to prepare you for these conversations that will take place in your life. They're coming. Some of you are right in the middle of some of these. How do we address one another in Christ? How are we to approach one another for Christ? How can we encourage one another to keep following Christ? When is this a big deal? When does this cross a line in which God wants us to act? The Bible is not silent. So with that in mind, let's give our hearts to verses 11 through 14. But, you see this conjunction here? We are changing scenes. But when Cephas, that is Peter, who came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, Paul says. Wow. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, fearing not Christ, but men. Tragic. 13. And the rest of the Jews, they acted hypocritically along with him. So even Barnabas the son of encouragement needed encouragement with this. And so they were led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul in verse 11 recounts his encounter with Peter. 
an encounter that took place in Antioch of Syria when Peter visited Paul. You see, Antioch was the leading Gentile church in Paul's day. Oh, may God, by his grace, give us a movement like he did at Antioch. That we would see generations accepting Christ. That we would see hundreds of people being unleashed in the gospel throughout all of Tulsa, even Oklahoma for Christ. It would be Antioch that was the third largest city in the entire known world at this time. It would give us one of the most humbling encounters of two individuals in the entire New Testament. And Paul says in verse 11, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. The image here is striking. It describes someone who has stopped in their tracks. Paul says, I set myself against his way. That's his point. Without hesitation, Paul publicly confronts Peter. He rebukes and condemns him openly to his face. Why? Not because of Peter's doctrine. It's very important. Not because of his doctrine. Peter's not a hypocrite. He's not a heretic. He was just out of alignment. This isn't a doctrinal issue. You ready for this? This is a conduct issue. You see, initially, Peter, as a Jewish Christian, he was eating and conversing with Gentile Christians and Jewish Christ followers as well, perhaps even in an agape feast which was an intentional meal used often by Jewish Christians as a means to share the gospel. So for those who were traveling throughout Asia Minor, they would come to a place and, and these Christians would gather their resources and would gather their food and they would have a meal. And specifically at the beginning of that meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is for Christ followers only. And in doing so, they would share the gospel. And many accepted Christ they begin this incredible fellowship. But over time, Peter began to slowly shun, not interact publicly with other Gentile Christ followers. Hypocritically, Peter and Barnabas and many others began to do so. And this church began to be unsettled, began to be in misalignment from church to church in this region. They were adhering to a message, not of God, but of these Judaizers. And they began to disassociate with God's people. And so when do we step in? What is appropriate for us to meet face to face with another Christ follower? Look at verse 14. When their conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. We are all going to have personality differences. We are all going to have things that we tend to gravitate toward. All of us are inclined at some time to major on something that is really minor in regard to kind of the Penelope of, of God's grace and glory and all of these things. But when are we to act? When are we to take initiative? When there is observable conduct that is out of step with the truth of the gospel. And so Paul, in his apostolic authority, now publicly sums up Peter's hypocritical behavior and rebukes his actions and his walk, for they were not in alignment with the gospel. That surprisingly, even to Paul, there's a sense here grammatically that Peter is once again began to vacillate in choosing his own personal comforts over Christ. This isn't something new for Peter. In fact, remember in the Gospels where 
You know, Peter sees Christ walking on the water and he goes right after him and all of a sudden Peter's walking on water. But instead of keeping his eyes on Christ, he takes his eyes off Christ and he begins to sink. Remember Peter, the night that Christ will give his life, that Jesus began to say that they are going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. And Peter, on behalf of all the disciples, said, I'll never deny you. Jesus says, oh, Peter, by the end of this night, you'll not deny me not once, not twice, but three separate times. And he did. Here, once again, you have Peter who is choosing the comfort of a few rather than standing firm with the king. So Paul had no other choice. You say, well, wait a minute. Why didn't he do this privately? You see, Jesus tells us how we're to work out conflict, how we're to reason with one another, that we're to, according to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, we're to go to this person. We're to seek to them reconciliation. Bring them back to the Father. And if that doesn't work, then we're to take another Christ follower and we're to go with them and ask once again through the gospel, come back to Christ. Restore this fellowship for the glory of God. If that doesn't work, then to take it to the leadership of the church. You say, why didn't Paul do that? Well, according to 1 Timothy 5.20, the Bible says, specifically with leaders, specifically with those who are apostles, who have authority over God's people in the Bible, pastors and shepherds and therefore out, removed from this text, that if this case took forward and lived out publicly, then the rebuke, according to 1 Timothy 5.20, is to be public in order to bring repentance to all who see. That's exactly what Paul did. He came to Peter and he reminded Peter, Peter, you previously said in Acts chapter 15, verse 9, that there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. Yet your actions say otherwise. And so these men met face to face. And so these men, by God's grace, began to reconcile one another to the Lord. How can we do the same in a way that honors Christ? Let me give you five steps in closing. Five steps to use the gospel in conflict. Number one, intentionally pause and pray. Oh, I know some of us were ready. We're ready to send that text. We're ready to send that DM. We're ready to send out that calendar invite. But until you meet with Jesus, you're not ready to talk to anybody else. Intentionally pause and then get on your knees and pray. So many of this friction and fraction among us could have been avoided if Christ followers just had enough wisdom and patience and grace to not make a phone call at 5.30 p.m. and said, wait till the next morning. Wait until you've met with Christ, your king. Until you talk to him, you're not ready to talk to anybody else. Period. Intentionally pause and pray. Secondly, take the first step. Don't ask anybody to do what God's telling you to do. As you follow Christ, we're to emulate Christ. Take the first step. Schedule the appointment. Make the phone call. Do it in a way that is personal and honoring to the Lord, face-to-face in the best way you can. Number three, you ready for this? Focus on his story, not your glory. The sole aim of reconciliation in the New Testament 
is complete forgiveness in Christ, is to bring them back into a fellowship with Christ. If the sole end of whatever this is, is your own glory so you can win, then this is not about Christ, this is about you, and the Lord will not bless that. You may win a battle, but you're gonna lose the war. And that'll bring you more misery, I assure you, than you ever even thought possible. Focus on the gospel, that we were all made in God's image, that we are equally before God and humbly in need of God. And by his grace, he saved and rescued all of us from this ocean of awfulness and sin and pride and all of these other things. And that he is still, though he has saved us, he is still in the process of transforming us and shaping us into the person of Christ. And so keep your focus on Christ. Keep your heart in God's word. Keep the end of all of this to restore this fellowship, to help whoever this is run for Christ. Fourthly, forgive Forgive and then forgive. Forgive them. There's a reason why the Bible says, and he takes our sin, our iniquities from the east to the west, that he plunges them into the depths of the sea or into a muddy pond in western Oklahoma. Can't see him anymore. And the same Christ that forgave us is calling us to forgive them. You are never more like Christ, when you forgive someone who has either intentionally or unintentionally wronged you. Forgive them. Forgive them. And then forgive them. And then fifthly, just set some ground rules for the future. And then move on. I mean, intentionally discuss how we got here and how by God's grace we'll never do this again. And so describe to them some, some ways in which their words or actions or tone or intent wounded you or offended you or was wrong, was bringing glory to them, not the Lord. And, and then prayerfully set up some ground rules that we can adhere by in Christ as we follow Christ. Because life is too short. The gospel is too important. This world is in complete chaos, constantly changing. And they need a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They need good news that lasts, that truly does change, and that is available the moment they place their faith, not in the works of men, not in some ancestral traditions, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, the same King who loved you and chose you and saved you and by God's grace can do the same for them. In a world that is ever changing, may we look to a God who never changes and may that embolden us to boldly declare his gospel for no other gospel saves. And may we remind ourselves of this truth, of this healing, sanctifying work of Christ and may it empower us to never change the gospel as we live for him. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. 
For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and always remember, you are loved.